Welcome to the 181st episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Drew Chapman, author of the thriller novel, The Ascendant. Stay tuned for the interview. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Drew Chapman, author of the new thriller novel, The Ascendant. C.J. Box, the New York Times bestselling writer, said about The Ascendant, The Ascendant is a rollicking, globe-hopping, timely, and prescient page-turner, a 21st century thriller. Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, I wondered if you could read um, a few pages from your new novel, The Ascendant. Sure, absolutely. I will, uh, I'll, I'll start from chapter four. It's when I was doing my book tour, I usually started around there and it was always a good, uh, it was always a good introduction to our main character. Great. Okay. Chapter four, New York city, March 24th, 927 PM. Garrett Riley sat at a table in the back of McSorley's near the bathrooms where it smelled more like stale urine than stale beer. But he didn't care because he was with his friends and the three of them had already plowed through four pitchers of half and half and six shots of tequila. And anyway, the back afforded him the best view of all the other halfwits in the crowded East Village bar. And Garrett loved casting scattershot aspersions. Like the four young gray-suited hedgies at the window, singing an off-key rendition of that stupid Journey song they played to end the Sopranos, he could really hate on them. Fucking hedge fund guys, Garrett growled between sips of beer. Look at those assholes. Hedge funds are a Ponzi scheme. How can people not see that? Mitty Rodriguez, five foot four and 200 pounds of squat Puerto Rican gaming programmer and Garrett's best friend, raised her beer in a salute. Why don't you get off your sorry butt and hit one of them? Knock his teeth out. Maybe I will, Garrett said, sizing up the biggest of the hedgies. Six foot four, two, muscled, looked like he might have been a lacrosse player. Shane Michelson shook his head. The lanky junior currency analyst with bad skin was no by no means a fighter. Can we please not get kicked out of another bar, Garrett? Please, I'm running out of happy hour spots. Yeah, sure, forget them. I'm going to make more money this week than they'll make in their entire lives. Shane shook his head disbelievingly. How are you going to do that? Garrett scanned the young woman, women standing at the bar. One caught his attention, striking tall, olive-skinned. Dollar's going to tank, and I'm going to ride it all the way to the bottom. Shane laughed. Garrett, I'm a currency trader. The dollar shows no sign of tanking. Well, maybe you're not a very good trade currency trader. Mitty gave out a squeal of delight. Ooh, bitch slap, catfight, catfight. Fuck you, Garrett. Shane looked away, pissed. Then his curiosity got the better of him. His friends knew better than to discount Garrett's boasts entirely. They had a nasty habit of coming true. What do you know? Tell me. T-bond dump, Garrett said. It's coming. Sovereign wealth fund. Flooding, flooding the market. Carnage on the horizon. I didn't see excess treasuries on the block. Yeah, the Federal Reserve probably is buying up the excess, so no one panics. Hey, you see that girl at the bar? Garrett nodded. I think she's checking me out. Who would want to kill the dollar? Is it the Eurozone? They're our friends. She's a hottie, Garrett said. Russia? They don't hold enough of our debt. An Arab state? We'd nuke them. The Japanese? It would sink their economy. Can we not talk about money for a change, Mitty said. I did a 40-man raid on the Kelsudad yesterday. Almost took the Citadel, but the pissant nefarian screwed me. Garrett smiled. He and Mitty were kindred souls, tech-obsessed gamers who lived as much online as they did in the real world. They'd met in the first-person shooter chat room and become best friends long before their eye they ever set eyes on each other. Virtual life was what bonded them, that and a deep-seated love of stirring up trouble. Mitty was the only person Garrett knew who could piss off as many people as he could and do it faster as well. 
Some nights it seemed like there were entire neighborhoods of New York City where the two of them were no longer welcome. Shane closed his eyes for a moment, then opened them in surprise. China? Garrett stood up, straightened his loosely hung tie and smiled. I'm going home with her tonight. Shane shook his head. No way. The yuan is tied to the dollar. We sink, China sinks. Their exports will go in the toilet. Why would they do it? Garrett stared at Shane. He was drunk and tottering, but even tottering, Garrett radiated in arrogant self-assurance. I haven't quite figured that part out yet, but the Chinese are sitting on $2.7 trillion in cash, so I'm guessing they'll do just fine. See you guys tomorrow. He waded across the crowded bar, weaving unsteadily between tables. He stopped short when he reached the girl at the bar. One of the hedges was chatting her up. Garrett scowled and elbowed his way between them. Dude, sorry, I was talking to her already. You'll have to go back and sing some more with your friends. The hedgy was the lacrosse player, and he was big for sure. Shot Garrett an angry look. You out of your mind? I was talking to her. Fuck off, buddy. Garrett smiled at the young woman. She didn't seem particularly impressed with either of them. Garrett leaned close. What I meant to say was, in my head, I've been talking to you for the last hour. We've been having this amazing conversation. But then this joker interrupted us, and I knew I had to come to your rescue. The young woman snorted a half laugh. The lacrosse player grabbed Garrett by the shoulder. I'm going to crack your head in, asshole. Garrett let himself be turned around. He looked the lacrosse player up and down. Let me guess. Duke, econ major, varsity lacrosse, third year at Apogee Capital Group, right? The lacrosse player gaped. How the hell did you know that? Have you been stalking me? Garrett smiled. Why would I bother stalking you? No, it was easy. Apogee Capital is four blocks away, but they're down 70% on the year. Your suit is a knockoff from Hong Kong, not chitin from Italy, and your shoes are at least two years old, which, for a hedgie, is ancient. They were hiring three years ago, but now, but not now, so you're a bottom-run guy and you've stayed at the bottom. But you got the job because Apogee's CEO played lacrosse at Duke, which is where your accent places you, and only a hedgy loser would sing Journey at the top of his lungs in a crowded bar. Do you want me to continue, or is that good enough? <laughs> That's good enough. That's good okay. enough. Great. Well, well, if someone listening hasn't heard about The Ascendant yet, how would you describe the novel? Um, the Ascendant is really about Garrett Riley, the character that we just met in that um, piece. Uh, and he is a 26-year-old bond trader on Wall Street. Um, and he's kind of obnoxious and he's kind of arrogant. Um, and his specialty is pattern recognition. That's how he makes his money. Um, and in the beginning of the book, he discovers that somebody is selling off massive amounts of U.S. treasuries to attack the American economy. And then he realizes or discovers that it's the Chinese um, and that there is an invisible war going on between the United States and China. He's recruited by the military to sort of help fight that war. But the thing about Garrett is, as you can see in that uh, chapter, he's subversive deeply subversive guy and you can ask him to do whatever you want but there's absolutely no guarantee that he's going to help you um and that's sort of the fun of the book that's great well do you remember was there a specific spark or idea that that led you to writing the ascendant um well you mean like a plot uh spark that or, or just the idea for the novel or the the plot in general yeah i mean the the, the idea for the the sort of idea of like a like an invisible war uh came to me uh, because I've been reading about the Stuxnet virus, which I don't know if you know about it, but it was a an internet worm, a piece of computer code that either the Americans or the Israelis uh, launched against Iranian uh, uranium um, nuclear facilities. And they destroyed their centrifuges that were making parts for bombs. And I thought, wow, that's really an amazing thing. Like, we we attacked their nuclear plant 
And, you know, if they did that to us, that would be a considered an act of war. Um, and then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, we kind of are at war with Iran, only it's this invisible war. It's this secret war. And once I realized that this existed and happened to the world, I thought, well, that's fantastic way to like get a great thriller concept going. And so I started looking for other examples of that. And there were a lot. Um, and so that's where it came from. Gotcha. And and when you started working on The Ascendant, did, did you ever have any concerns or worry about how to make financial info and numbers suspenseful, suspenseful for the reader? Um, well, n- you know, no, not, not, I guess that's a tough question for me, <laughs> financial stuff, uh, money economics. Like I just find that completely fascinating. Like I could read really dense books on economics or listen to lectures on economics all day long. And I would be on the edge of my seat. So I never found it, you know, hard to fathom like why I just assumed everybody would find it really fascinating. Obviously that's not the case, but to me, it just never crossed my mind. But then, you know, I'm, I was, I started as a TV writer and a feature mm-hmm. writer. So getting stuff to be suspenseful is kind of what I do for a living. Right. Um, so I just figured I would be able to figure out a way to make that work. Sure. Um, and, and now that you mentioned Hollywood, I was going to ask, um, given your your work in Hollywood, did The Ascendant start out for you as a screenplay or did you envision it as a novel from the very beginning? Well, that's an interesting question. So the way it really came about was uh, I, I'm a TV writer and often I get sort of uh, what are called blind script deals where you're hired by a network to write a project for them. And you have basically a year to figure out what the project is, get them to want to do it, and then write it. And I was under contract to an unnamed network. And I knew that I had six months to a year to figure out what I was going to write for them. But I, I I didn't know what it was. And then I had this idea for The Ascendant. And I thought, oh, I should I should sort of pitch that and sell it as a television show. Then I thought, you know, it's too political. It's too subversive. It's too much about sort of politics and patriotism and loyalty and China and no, no television network will ever buy it. Or if they do <laughs> buy it, if they do buy it, they'll sort of dumb it down, you know? Yeah, and yeah. so I thought, okay, I'm just going to write it as a, as a book. Um, and that's what I did. And, and what was the, what was the idea that you ended up doing for the, for the, the blind TV deal? Oh, what was the idea? Uh, <laughs> something incredibly banal. <laughs> no, no, I, I actually, I did a, you know, I did a, a more sort of standard soap. It never got made. Um, but, uh, you know, that's sure. part of part of what I do is every year there's a cycle of how um, stuff is pitched and sold and created for the TV right. networks. And so I, I'm often in that cycle of of selling stuff. Gotcha. And and so once you had written the the novel, what was the path to publication like for you? Were were you able to find an agent um, pretty easily, or what was that process? Well, you know, I I have um, TV agents and gotcha. feature agents, so that part of it was sort of easy for me. But the interesting sort of the, the my my takeaway from how this became a published book was when I sat down to write it. After I thought, okay, I have this idea, I'm not going to sell it to a TV network. It's too political. I'm just going to sit. I'm going to write the book, and I don't care what anybody thinks about it, I'm just going to self-publish it. I'm going to digitize it. I'm going to put it up online. I'm going to charge $1.99. And if like, 
you know, 40 of my mother's friends buy the book, that's fine. At least I will have written something without any notes. Nobody's going to tell me what to do, you know, because I mean, I live in a world of executive notes, producer notes, actor notes. I mean, it's, it kind of drives you crazy. Yeah. And I just thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to write. And so I wrote it without any expectations. I really wrote it as just a piece of sort of a fun thriller that I could like put online and people would like or not like, I didn't care. Um, but then my feature agents read it and they said, Hey, you know, this is really good. We should send it to New York. You should try and get it published. And I, I, I said yes to them, but in my heart, I was like, eh, forget it. It's never going to happen. I'm not going to worry about it. But, uh, they sent it to a literary agent who they had done a deal with earlier, you know, a couple of months previous and he loved it. And, you know, sort of just, then it went the normal route. He right. sent it out to publishers. That, that's great. So, um, was the process freeing for you since, as you mentioned, you, you you live in a world where you get tons of notes and feedback as opposed to just sitting down and writing what you want to write? Oh, more than freeing. It was like <laughs> orgasmic. Uh, well, you know, I mean, when you live in a world of, of screenplays, screenplays have all these, you know, really can only describe them as arcane rules about, you know, here's your first act and your second act and here's the character reversal and Here's how you have to describe your characters and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's and it has to be 115 pages if it's a feature and 55 pages if it's a pilot. And, you know, there's just rules. And if you break the rules, you're not going to get hired. I mean, you just you won't work. So to write a book where there were no rules was incredibly liberating. In fact, it was so liberating. It was very hard for me to actually do it. I when I when they when Simon & Schuster first bought it and my editor read through, she said, you know, you could add a hundred pages to this manuscript. And I was just shocked. I was like, no way. I'm not putting another hundred pages. That's, you know, people won't read it. And she's like, uh, it's a book. Yes, they will. <laughs> so, so did it, you end up adding? Oh yeah, absolutely. But she had to press me all the time. You know, you could make this scene longer. You could do more here. You can write more. Um, I think it was slightly underwritten when I first sold it. Um, and, you know, I'm writing the sequel now and I'm, I'm definitely making it more of a book and less of a book written by a screenwriter. Right, right. So so you are working on a sequel now to The Ascendant? Yes. Uh, Simon & Schuster bought The Ascendant and they bought the sequel too. That's great. Well, well, what books or writers or even movies have you read or seen in the last year that you that made an impact on you and that, that you would recommend? Um, well, you know it's when I'm writing in a genre and obviously this is a genre book, this is a thriller. I tend to read genre stuff just because I need to live in that same kind of headspace as, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm not going to read war and peace. It's just, you know, then I'll be trying to emulate Tolstoy and that's always a mistake. Um, so I, uh, I read a lot of sort of classic and read a lot of classic thrillers. So like I pulled out all these old John le Carré novels, like the um, spy who came in from the cold and his very, his sort of big, his pop, the one that really made him like famous, Right, man, it's so fantastic. It's so spare and yet emotional. And it describes East Berlin in such a dark, grimy, tense way. It's was really fantastic. And really like that, John le Carré is just, I don't know, he's hes the king. He doesn't, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't pretend to write anywhere near what he does. And certainly mine's are, mine are more thrillers than sort of his are more mysteries, I guess. Uh, I guess his are thrillers. His are more spy 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I do just enjoy everything he's written always. That's great. Anybody else that you would recommend? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, for modern stuff, I, I'm a big fan of Lee Child. I mean, I don't love every book, but sure. I'm always impressed by the way that he goes back in and makes his stories fresh. Um, I also love the way that he makes the Jack Reacher character uh, sympathetic, and yet he's not a nice person. Um, <laughs> he, it, to say that he's a nice person is really stretching it. I mean, you know, the guy's a killer, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Happily a killer, loves violence, and yet you're with him. You know, he really he explodes that myth. That's a very Hollywood myth that your lead character has to be sympathetic. Um, and I think it's a little bit the mistake they made with the movie with um, Tom Cruise. You know, you just this guy is uh, he's a killer. He's an ass. Um, and he you know, and yet you just breathlessly read page after page after page. And I'm, I'm always I'm. A lot of the time I'm interested in the mechanics of how a book, a story is put together, even just letting go of whether it's a book, a screenplay, whatever. Sure. Uh, I, I, I find I, I'm very much a nuts and bolts person. I need to know about structure. I need to know how people did it. Um, I'm not one of those people who just sits down at a computer or a typewriter and has a kernel of an idea and then just like spins out a story. I plot everything out to within an inch of its life. And then I write out what the actual book is. So I, I, I'm a big deconstructor of, of novels. I, I took the, the Bourne books, the Ludlum Bourne books, and I just broke them down into sections and sort of deconstructed. And I, you know, <clears throat> he's a guy who I feel like actually did the opposite. He came up with an idea and he just sort of spun out story. Yeah, sometimes yeah. they just go into directions. You're like, what? Wait a second, huh? <laughs> That's true. That's true. So, so given that, um, I, I, I'm assuming that you that you plotted the the ascendant um, meticulously before you started writing it. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I do. I I put out. Um, well, it, it takes me a long time. It sometimes takes me as long to plot something out as it does to write it. I um I think about the characters. I write deep backgrounds on every character, where they came from, who they are, what they ate for breakfast, everything, and then I lay out every sort of chapter of the book or scenes and, and flashbacks. And, and I laid out in three by five cards and I spread them out on a wall or on the floor and I just shuffle them around and figure out how it all is going to play out. I, I need to know what my end point is. I need to know what my first scene is. I need to know what my last scene is. I need to know what the emotional sort of arc of each of the characters is. And only when I'm really, really comfortable all the way from beginning to end do I um, start writing? It was funny. I just to, to, to spin out from there. I was just reading an interview with JK Rowling. Have you read this? There's this new interview she did with um, Emma Watson. Oh, I haven't, I haven't read that yet. Well, I guess it's, it's just about to come out, um, but they've been sort of promoting it because in the interview, she says that had she do it, were, were she to write the Harry Potter series over again, um, Hermione Granger would not end up with, uh, what's his name? Ron Weasley. With Ron Weasley. Yeah. That that was a mistake. That she actually thinks that Hermione should end up with Harry Potter. That they're more suited for each other. And she said that the reason that she had them end up together, uh, Ron Weasley and Hermione, was because she does exactly what I do, which is plot out to within an inch of its life the entire thing. And once she's got that outline, she can't deviate. 
and that she realized at the end that she should have deviated that that was a mistake and i thought oh that's what it, that's a really interesting admission for someone to make especially someone who's like me incredibly anal about the course of the story sure sure so so given your your experience in hollywood what what advice would you have for someone who's listening who uh, may be interested in writing screenplays and having them produced. Any any suggestions along those lines or or, <laughs> or warnings? Uh, well, you know, I think, I mean, there's, I could, I the, we could talk about that for hours, literally, <laughs> and sometimes I do, I teach screenwriting and I will give long um, uh, lectures about that. Uh, I would say that the first thing is to figure out what kind of stories you like to tell um, and don't fall into the Hollywood trap of trying to write something that's commercial. Um, that will only get you in trouble. Really tell, write a screenplay that you think is, that, you know, makes you happy um, because the world of, for instance, television now is very fragmented and, you know, well, first of all, I would say don't write feature films. There's no business there. It's that's a dead that's a dead economy. Television is where it's at, especially for writers. Mm -hmm. And in television, and that's what I do. I write television. Right. In television, there are so many outlets for what you can write. There's so many cable channels. There's so many. You know, you can write for Amazon. You can write for Microsoft. You can write for Google. I mean, it's just amazing the number of places that want to do filmed content. Um, that you. Right. If you write the thing that you, makes you happy and you pick that little niche or genre of thing that makes you happy, then you'll be able to find a an equivalent niche or genre channel that will want to make it. If, you know, you do a good job and you try really hard. I mean, Hollywood's all about perseverance. Sure, sure. So if someone's listening and would like to learn more about you and The Ascendant, where could they find you online? Uh, they, I have a website. It's uh, drewchapmanauthor.com um, and that's like a splash page for the book and there's a little bio and then I have a blog that I um, keep but I have to admit I've been really bad about the blog lately just I've been overwhelmed but um, so you can go there and I have a Twitter feed you know Drew Chapman it's at Andrew D. Chapman um, and yeah I mean you know it's the book is um, up on Amazon and there's lots of reviews and good reads and there's lots of reviews and stuff like that. So it's, it's right. out there. It's out there digitally. You can, right. you can definitely find it. Well, again, we've been speaking with Drew Chapman, author of the new thriller novel, The Ascendant. As he just said, the book is in bookstores now. So grab a copy or grab a, an ebook copy. Drew, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, Jeff, thank you so much. Love doing right. it. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money. 